All right, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. <clears throat> I think we successfully survived head coverings last week, at least as far as I know. And we're in chapter 11 now, and this begins for us a section um, that goes through chapter 13, um, partially into 14, really, where Paul is going to address, this is sort of the more commonly known, more famous section of 1 Corinthians. And it is really the heart of the book. Because Paul's going to start addressing some, some issues with the way they gather and worship together. Okay, And there's, we've seen all the problems already. So you can already probably, if you've, if you've been walking with us through 1 Corinthians so far, you already kind of can expect this is not going to go well. Right? Like, <clears throat> with all the problems you already know about this church, can you imagine what it's like when they gather together on a, on a Sunday to try to worship together? It's probably pretty dysfunctional, and you would be right, it is. And so, but what's comforting is what's always kind of comforting is, is that it, it, it reminds us that, that from the beginning, from the beginning of the church, like the first churches were not perfect. And they are not necessarily a perfect template for which we should copy to do things, right? But we can learn a lot from what Paul tells them about how to fix the problems because we typically have some of the same problems, maybe not as severe, right? But we do have some of the same problems. So this morning, he's going to talk about specifically how they take the Lord's Supper or communion. We often call, call it communion. And we're going to take communion at the end of the sermon here. So if you're online, you can go to your kitchen and rummage around for, for something like bread, if you don't have bread, and some wine or juice or whatever you got, because we're going to do that at the end, okay? So <clears throat> the divisions Paul's going to address, he's been pointing out, they come in a very sharp relief in the next few chapters. He starts the section by addressing how they take the Lord's Supper together. So let's, I'm going to do things a little out of order, which I don't usually like to do because I, I, Scripture is inspired, and I think even the order of things is inspired. But I think we need to be reminded first of what communion means, what it's about, so that we can understand why Paul is so outraged. <laughs> He's just all beside himself, all right, for like the fifth time, you know, in this letter. But, and so I'm going to start there in the middle of this section, and then we'll come back to the beginning, okay, and, and address that. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. 23 to 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he, way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, so he begins here by describing the Lord's Supper in verse 23 as a divine tradition that he received from the Lord Jesus himself, and he has now passed on to them. So this is a, kind of the first liturgy in the church. He says, I got this from Jesus, Jesus did it, and now I'm giving it to you and passing it on to you. And I think there's an implication here that 
you know, obviously we should keep doing this generation to generation. Pass this on. Keep doing it. And the point is to remember Christ. And we're going to get to kind of what that means because I think that's a really deep phrase when you start looking at how that's used in the Bible. We're going to get there in a minute. Paul's not beginning something. He is continuing something that he clearly believes Jesus wanted them to do. Okay, so that's why we do that. That's why we're going to do it in a minute. Like on the face of it, very simplistically, we take communion because Jesus said, keep doing this. It is a, one of the only liturgical elements that we all kind of agree on. Regardless of your denomination, everybody kind of does it a little differently. There's different beliefs about it. People do it at different intervals. Some do it every week. Some do it once a month. But everybody's doing it. It's one of the cornerstones. It's one of the ways you know a church is a Christian church, is they take communion together. So let's look at some of the words he says here, because it's pretty profound, and I think it's familiar, but I want to try to get past that familiarity a little bit so that it's fresh for you. So the night that Jesus was betrayed by his own disciple Judas, he prophesied with a loaf of bread. You need to recognize that he, he is prophesying here. It's, he's doing this before he dies. We do it after, but Jesus picks up a piece of bread. He's going to prophesy to them using this piece of bread. And he breaks it in half, and he told us that his body would be like this. It's going to be broken. So he rips this piece of bread in half, and he says, this is what's going to happen to me very soon. This body that you're looking at, the body holding this bread, will be ripped into like this bread is. Honestly, that's kind of a gruesome picture if you, take him, if you consider what it meant. The body of the incarnation, God in the flesh, is going to be broken. The body that God had fashioned for himself. This is the body that when, when God said, I'm going to make myself a body, because who makes them? he's the only one that makes bodies. <laughs> he said, this is that body. This is the one that sort of housed God himself in this mystical union between human and God. This is that body that's going to be broken and destroyed. The body of the incarnation, God in the flesh. He was giving it up to be broken, abused, and torn. He looked at them and he now looks at you and I and says, this is my body which was broken for you. Because <laughs> that's the, now for us it's a past event. This had to be, can you imagine, you know, Jesus is doing pretty well at this point. His ministry's going well. Things are cooking along. They finally all kind of understood he's the Messiah. They're starting to work this out. And he says, hey, guys, by the way, great meal. Uh, I'm going to die. And it's going to be gruesome and painful. So then he turns and he says, well, first he says, then he told them to do this ceremony in remembrance of him. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he says that over the bread, and then he does the same thing with the wine. He then prophesies, he holds up a cup of wine, same thing, I'm going to prophesy to you with this cup of wine. And he says, this is the, the blood of the covenant. You're like, what is that all about? If you're not familiar with the terminology, you could be like, what? Like, that's kind of gross and weird, and I think I'd be freaked out. Well, let me explain that to you quickly. This could be its own sermon. But ancient land covenants were sealed with blood, okay? We don't do that now. When you buy a house or buy some property, no one's killing a ram, okay? <laughs> Hopefully not, right? That, 
That, that would be really weird, weird for us, but for them it was not. It was kind of how you did it. God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 is a great example. You can also see that in Hebrews 9. In saying this, in saying this is the blood of the new covenant, Jesus is referencing God's covenant with Moses, which you can see in Hebrews chapter 9, and also God's covenant with Abraham there in Genesis 15. In those covenants, it was the blood of rams and bulls that sealed the promises. It was also uh, uh, an inference that if, if I break the covenant with you, then may it be unto me what we've just done to this animal. In other words, I should be slaughtered and killed. It's like an implied like self-curse that you enter into in a covenant. But Jesus says, I'm the one. If you break the covenant with me, I'll pay for it. And so he holds up this cup. And he says, it looks like wine. And it is wine. But what it represents is the blood that I'm going to spill in order to cut a new covenant with you. And they would have gotten all this reference because they were steeped. They understood the Abrahamic covenant. They understood the Mosaic covenant. They had seen, they'd gone to temple every year of their life and they'd seen the animals killed for their sin. They understood as soon as he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. They knew exactly what he was saying. It's hard, harder for us. And again, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So what does this mean to remember Christ? So if you do a survey of scriptures that talk about remembering God or forgetting God, that's kind of an opposite. Or remembering the poor, that phrase, you'll find some interesting things. I've listed some scriptures here in your notes if you want to look them up. I'm not doing that this morning. Um, but remembering is not just a mental recollection. It's not what he's saying. That's part of it, but it's actually a very small part. It's not like, oh, I forgot my keys or I lost my, I can't find my phone, or I forgot to tell you about whatever. It's, it's not that. It's not about forgetfulness. It's not about mental recollection. Forgetting God is not just about absent-mindedness. Oh, I forgot God for a minute. That's not what it's about. To remember God is to give him an active, present role in your life. Not just in your mind, but in your life in general. It's an active role. He's present all the time. I'm always considering what his will might be as opposed to mine. I'm always thinking about, and, and he's part of my decision making. He's, 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 I'm, I'm worshiping him in as many different ways as I can. That's what my life revolves around. That is remembering God. And forgetting God is just not doing that. It's letting your life revolve around you putting him in a secondary role, he may still be there. <laughs> you see how tricky that is? So attending church on Sunday, every, faithfully every week, year after year, you, also, you actually might be guilty of forgetting God because he doesn't, you have not put him in an active role. You've put him in a secondary role and you think that that's enough, that he'll be happy and satisfied with just sort of hanging out in a corner <laughs> instead of being at the center. Anthony Thistleton has a great big section in his commentary that's phenomenal about this, but it's very difficult to understand, so I've, I'm going to summarize it for you. All right, You're welcome. 
He says, to remember God is to engage in worship, trust, and obedience, just as to forget God is to turn one's back on him. There's four aspects here you can find in those scriptures I gave you. One is actively involve yourself in worship, gratitude, trust, obedience, and acknowledgement. That's the first thing that remembering Christ and his death looks like. Actively involve yourself. So that means you're not passive. That word active is intentional. So there's no, you cannot passively engage with God. You either actively engage with him or you don't. You either worship him or you don't worship him. Sitting in a room with other people worshiping him is not the same as worshiping him, right? Listening to someone else tell you what the Bible says is not the same as reading the Bible yourself. Sitting in a room with other people praying is not the same as praying. There is a difference. I'm talking about actively involving yourself in those things. Number two, actively identify with Christ as though what he did then is now a present reality through the Holy Spirit. You're identifying yourself with Christ in a way that you trust and believe that what he did then is not just a past event that you appreciate and um, see as a model for good living. We should all be sacrificial. We should all be really good to each other. And Jesus just talked about love and sacrifice, and we should sacrifice like him. Jesus didn't die to make a, be a model for you. He died for you in your place. He, has, he died as you. And so you identify with him in that way. This is a present reality for me. Number three, continually return to the cross <clears throat> and the resurrection as the founding event of your identity. It is who you are, not just something you appreciate. I think this is one of the dangers in communion, is that we take it in obedience to him, but we get so familiar that we forget that this, is, this defines me. <laughs> this is who I am now. Everything I am is in response to this, and is in this, and from this. What Christ did for me on the cross and his resurrection is the thing that defines me as a human being. It's what I am about now. It's what my life is for. And it's what gives me purpose. Number four, continually look forward to the second coming of Christ as your final hope. All right, so now that we got some, some context, let's go back to the beginning of this section. Because he's going to tell them that them getting together and taking communion is actually for the worse, not for the better. And you think, well, how is that possible? <laughs> how can it be that it's so bad, it would be better if they didn't do it? We're going to find out. It says, verse 17, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
The verb trans- translated there as come together as a church appears to have been like a semi-formal, semi-technical term that for gathering to worship, okay? So some, it would bear some resemblance to what we're actually doing right now. When they come together for the purpose of worship. So this is essentially a church service, a worship service, okay? There's some debate over the history regarding what exactly is happening here, but it's very clear that some were eating separately, which was a Roman custom for, the, for rich people to eat separately from the poor people because they, they could afford better food and more food. And so they would eat separately. You can actually find, they've found in, in where Corinth was, like buildings where there was a small room that would fit about nine people that was ornate and had the tables and everything was really beautiful and it fit about nine, pe- nine diners. And then another area that's outdoors, uncovered, where the poor people would eat. And this is probably what's happening. Some form of that, at least, is happening here. Meanwhile, others in the church were too poor to eat, apparently. So imagine, you know, fellowship dinner, covered dish meal, whatever. And you have the rich people in the church, people who could afford it. They eat in a separate dining room that's really plush and, you know, kind of a black tie event. (laughs) Sorry, it's terrible. Uh, It's plush and ornate and they've got people serving them and there's tons of food it's just lavish and they're all just glutting themselves on all the food and they've got wine and drink and they're in there and they're drunk apparently they've been drinking for a while now and this is a church service and then outside that space somewhere are all the poor people in the church some of which apparently were even slaves And they've come to the same fellowship meal, and they don't have any food at all. They can't afford it. And they're sitting outside listening to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ partying and carousing and eating in the other room, waiting for them to finish so we can take the Lord's Supper together. You can see now why Paul is so outraged why he says what you're doing you're calling it the lord's supper but it is not the lord's supper that you're taking we don't get to define what worship is god defines it and he says this doesn't count what you're doing is something else and apparently they're doing this in some kind of way this is an important point that actually humiliated those who were going hungry i don't know how that worked But there was an attitude there that was not just we're going to eat separately. It was they were doing it in a way that was directly humiliating and degrading to the people who could not participate. Pretty gross. So following this rebuke, that's where we get what we've already talked about, his teaching on the Lord's Supper, where it comes from, what it means. But look what he says after that reminder. Verses 27 to 32, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a lot of strong words here, one being because you have been doing this, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And what that means is what we've already detailed above. Some of you are sick, and even some of you have died. That's scary. This is, so this is pretty serious. This is life and death. It's no small thing. But even more scarier than that, I think, is verse 27. And Paul is saying that the way they are acting at the Lord's table puts them in the same category as those that crucified Jesus. To be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord is to be liable for his death. You could translate it that way. I mean, didn't I just want to make you put your hand over your mouth for a second? They're not sinning against the bread and the wine. They're sinning against Christ himself. The manner in which they're gathering voids their worship so thoroughly that it doesn't count as worship at all. Paul is not just outraged about the poor being overlooked and humiliated. That's terrible. I know that's part of what offends us initially. And that's right. God's not happy about that. But there's a deeper sin here because the sin is against Christ himself. He is most outraged by how they're doing so while standing at the foot of the cross. He says, I'm out. you're standing here in the moment that Christ gave you to honor and remember, to bring him into the center of your life, to actively engage in genuine trust and worship of him, to remember who you are and to sit at the foot of the cross. And you're right in that space, that holy moment, you are choosing to act this way. He can't believe it. They are the soldiers casting lots for the clothing of Jesus. They are the passerby that mocks him. They are the one that wrote King of the Jews sarcastically over his head. They have forgotten God, and their first evidence of this is that they have forgotten the poor. Among them. In the same church as them. So Paul would say, I think, he would say, you've forgotten God. It's the same charge we see over and over come against the, the Jews in the Old Testament as they would, they would forget God and then a prophet would come and rebuke them and then God would judge them and then they would remember God and then he would go, good job, and then go a while and then they'd forget God and then a prophet would come. That was a cycle. It's the same thing here. You've forgotten God. And you say, how do I know? First sign, you've forgotten the poor. Right here in the middle of taking communion together. This is where I think it starts to come home, doesn't it? So he says, examine yourself. That's an interesting idea. It's a forensic kind of like, it's, it's a, it's like it means put yourself on trial. Like inspect, examine, look for evidence. Examine your faith, your good works, your obedience to Christ, your treatment of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Examine your attitude towards those not like you. Examine your heart towards the poor. Do this every time you gather for worship and certainly every time you partake in communion. 
Not because you're just scared you don't want to be sick and die. <laughs> That's part of it. But because you want to honor Christ. Because you recognize that we're coming and we're sitting at the foot of the cross in this, in this place of sacred sacrifice for me. Where my identity as a human being is formed. Where my sins are forgiven and I'm told who I am. Where I'm rescued and redeemed. Not because of anything I've done, because I'm nothing. It's all him. He shapes me, informs me. And so how could I, in that place, with that understanding and that awareness, look at my brothers and sisters and say, I'm better than you? Because I can't. It's a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, learn this lesson. Not to trust Christ Jesus because you repent, but trust Christ to make you repent. Not to come to Christ because you have a broken heart, but to come to him that he may give you a broken heart. Not to come to him because you are fit to come, but to come to him because you are unfit to come. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. In other words, the only thing we have to bring to him is our sin. That's all we got. You have nothing else it's not like you can come with a resume and say, look, you should, uh, you should die for me because I know there's some issues, but I'm a diamond in the rough, Jesus. You just give me your time and some, a little tweaking, a little polishing, teach me some Bible verses. Look what I could do. I'll be the man. You just give me a chance. Give me a shot. Give me a shot at the title. Let me in, coach. Right? We come to him like that. And that's not what Paul is asking us to do when he says examine yourself. He's not saying go, go root around and, 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 and find your, your, your perfections and say, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I can take communion now. I would say, that's what Spurgeon helps us see, is that what you're doing is you're looking for the grace of God. You look and examine your life and say, where's the weakness? Where's my need? Where's the sin? Because it's there that you define the grace of God moving in your life. It's there where you find redemption. That's where you need it. Because if you examine yourself and you come up going, I'm pretty good. I'm good. No problems to speak of. Then then you're like the Corinthians who were able to sit there and eat and drink and get drunk and ignore those who were starving in their church, probably just feet away from them, and thought that they were superior. We'll see later that there was part of that feeling of superiority was because they had certain gifts. They were able to speak in tongues and prophesy and do these things. And they sort of felt like, you know, I'm kind of a big deal because I speak in tongues. I'm just going to do it. And I know we've already had four prophecies, that, and I'm just going to, I'm going to do mine just right from where I am, and you all should all hear it because it's really a great word from God. I don't care if it's confusing or a mess, but I'm just going to do it. It's this continual attitude. And so Paul's not saying examine yourself from that perspective, looking for all the, your bona fides that you can hold up to God and say, see, I really am a Christian. Look how good I am. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look 
for the grace. Look for the weakness. Look for the brokenness. Look for the sin. And when you see the sin, don't despair. You're sitting at the foot of the cross. Look where you are. You're exactly in the place with the, all the supply you need to address those sins. And when you see yourself that way, that to me is the greatest sign of your actual real faith. Is that you see your sin in stark relief and you're able to just say, I'm right here at the cross, it's yours. Lord, help me with my weakness. Be strong in my weakness. All I have to bring to you is my brokenness. I am unfit to come, but that is my only qualification. My fitness is my unfitness. My qualification is my lack of qualification. And you come to him that way. And this is what they couldn't see. This is what they were oblivious to as they drank and ate. So that's what we're going to do together. Um, we're going to take communion together. Um, so, and we're going to do it like we did pre-COVID. You may rejoice. Um, no peeling things that requires the dexterity of a brain surgeon. Um, and, and we're going to just, so here's kind of how I want to do it. We'll just come up and come to whichever one is closest to you, down whichever aisle is closest. Get the bread and the juice then go back to your seat. And then we're going to take a few moments, like an awkwardly long moment. Um, and maybe during that time, let's just have no music. We'll, do, we'll sing a song at the end. But let's just have a few moments to examine yourself. And I just want to warn you not to examine yourself like a Pharisee. Don't examine yourself like a Corinthian. <laughs> examine yourself like a believer at the foot of the cross. And then we're going to take communion together and we're going to worship one more song, all right? So come on up, um, and we'll wait.
All right, so just take a minute <clears throat> just to put down your resume and just invite the Holy Spirit to poke around in the closets of your heart and show you stuff. And as you see things, just repent. Say, God, forgive me. Would you strengthen me there? Would you help me? All right, so why don't we stand up together? So this is, this reminds us of the broken body of Jesus that was torn in two for us, broken and beaten. We don't do this just to recollect. And as, so as you take in this bread, I want you to take him in and not just into your heart in that sense, but into your life and say, God, you're, Jesus, you're, you're it for me. You're all I got. This is it. You're everything. You define me. You redeem me. You are the centerpiece of my life. And without you, I'm just nothing. I'm a vapor. And so remember him that way. So God, we remember you. Let's take this juice. It's the blood of Christ who bled to cut a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And so all that sin, all that brokenness, all that weakness that you just discovered in those probably less than a minute, you probably st stepped over a pile of stuff. Everybody in this room has got stuff that if we, if, Everybody, if it was put on display right now, you might not ever come back here. You'd be so ashamed. And that pile of stuff is sitting at the foot of the cross. And the blood of Christ is running down and just eliminating it and washing it away. And so, Lord Jesus, we, in our broken state, We sit at your feet. We lay all these things at your feet. All our brokenness, all our weakness, all our unfitness. And we give it to you. God, we remember that you died for this. 
You did not just die for us. You died in our place as us. We are unified with you in your death and in your resurrection. And so we thank you that we are clean, we are washed, we are redeemed, we are sanctified, we are holy. Not because of us, but because of you and this blood. Amen.